0: Let's pray together before we turn to God's word. Lord God, would you be our stone of help this morning? Would you help us to see our incredible need? Would you help us, Lord, to see by the work of your spirit just how far we have fallen short of you? Lord, would you help us to grasp just how much we have turned towards the idols of our own lives and how, Lord, how much we need to turn towards you in repentant faith. Oh, Lord, would you do just a a miraculous work in hearts today? Lord, would you help people who have known you for years to turn from the sins that have been plaguing them for some time? Lord, would you help people who have never embraced your son, Jesus Christ, to know today is the day of their justification and the start of their walk with you in pursuit of holiness. Oh, Lord, do this mighty thing that only you can do as the word of God goes forth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Though the word revival is often haphazardly in the American church, I have... No doubt that it's a real and glorious occurrence that the Lord delights to bring about for the building up of His church and for the glory of His name. Revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores God's people to a healthy spiritual life after a period of decline. Revival occurs when the Spirit of God brings life and transformation to the elect people of God. And it happens all the time, both in small ways, such as in local churches, and even in larger locales, like in cities and regions and nations. So so revival happens on either a micro or a macro level, Whenever a sinner or a group of sinners, respectively, turn from sin and embrace the Lord, either for the very first time or with a renewed spiritual vigor. Perhaps one of the most compelling examples of revival is found in Acts chapter 2, when on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out so potently that thousands of people came to the Lord Jesus that day through repentance and faith in Christ. And when the gospel word was preached during the Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s, it brought a great revival to much of Europe as people embraced powerful convictions like the Bible alone and Christ alone and faith alone. Convictions that transformed countless lives and whole cities and entire nations. Here in America, we learn in history classes about the Great Awakening, a revival which saw an astonishing spiritual and cultural upheaval right before the birth of this nation. But revival did not begin in the New Testament nor is it found exclusively in these days after the cross. Indeed, God brought revival about both in the lives of individuals and in the community of His people all throughout the Old Testament too. And one powerful example of this is found in our text today, where after years of sorrow caused by their own spiritual failure, the people of Israel humbly turned again to God and saw him do a mighty saving work in response. After all the painful lessons the Lord has taught his people in chapters 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, where they had treated his ark like a lucky charm, and where they had acted callously and carelessly in their approach to worship, all while serving the idols of the nations... After all of that, here in chapter 7, he brings about heart revival. This chapter is all about what God did because he stirred the hearts of his people Israel to turn from their sins and to embrace him anew. And as this revival took place, as we're going to see, he acted in two exceedingly kind ways. First of all, the Lord responded graciously to their repentance. And second, the Lord provided them with a godly leader. So today, we're going to consider the kindness of the Lord and the implications of His kindness to us and to our church, a church that is being revived and a church that we pray will be revived. The first way that the Lord is kind that we take from our text is that the Lord responds graciously to repentance. In verse 2, if you'll look there, the verse we looked at for a short time last week, in verse 2, after all their troubles with the ark, some 20 years had now passed, and they were mournful. Not just mournful over their hard circumstances, seeking only to alleviate their many problems, but mournful after the Lord, it says there. They lamented over what they had become before the Lord and how they had neglected their status as God's precious people. They grieved because they had sought out other places of refuge, other sources for heart satisfaction other gods for their pleasure in worship. And now, with Samuel's clear preaching leading the way, and with the Holy Spirit's conviction going with him, they sought to turn back to the Lord and worship him again as their God. But this would require repentance. A hard break wherein they would turn away from their sin and idolatry and turn towards the Savior God in faith. Now, repentance is an if-then reality. That's how verse 3 describes it. Look at verse 3. It says, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then... Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the path before them was an if-then path. If they desired to turn to the Lord and know His great salvation along with His most kind fellowship... Then they would need to turn away from all the other gods that they had been pursuing. If they sought to turn to the Lord with all their heart, then they would need to stop breaking the first commandment, which is, You shall have no other gods before me. They would need to repent. You have heard that oil and water do not mix. That if you put both in a jar, the oil, which is less dense than the water, will rise from it to the top. Well, not only does the Lord God not want his worship to be mixed with idols, but he positively refuses to have them anywhere near his precious people. The Lord and idols shall not mix, and he does not want his people to have anything to do with them. And this was for their good, because all that those impotent idols could do was leave them focusing inward on themselves and their own lusts while bringing them humiliation and devastation and eventually lasting judgment. And even more importantly than that, this command is also for God's deserving glory. Because the creator alone must be worshipped by his creatures. And so, the people of Israel, verse 3 says, were to turn to him with all their heart. In other words, they were to turn to him with a genuine faith and a true desire to serve him alone. They were to repent and believe. They were to turn away from the powerless gods of the nations, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, which were commonly accepted Canaanite idols. And they were to turn in faith towards the mighty God of heaven so that their hearts would now go in his holy direction. It was to be an about face. But now, my friends, we must know that such a repentance Is a work of God Himself. Indeed, all such heart change like we see here comes from His gracious hand. The promise of the new covenant, which God made with His people through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel and initiated by Jesus Christ, is that He would give each of His people a new heart and a new spirit. He gives the new heart. And the Apostle Paul, standing on the foundation of that new covenant in Jesus Christ, prayed over the church at Thessalonica that the Lord would direct their hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So, all heart change, my friends. All heart change. Even the heart change that occurs here in chapter 7 is a gracious work of the Lord to move His people in His Direction. And it is vital to understand that heart repentance always precedes life transformation. Repentance of heart always precedes transformation of life. In verse 3, once they put away their idols and directed their hearts to the Lord exclusively, Then it was declared that God would deliver them out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, their lives had become quite hard, and they had been hard for some time, far longer even than just the previous 20 years. But due to God's working in their hearts, they evidently now felt the sting of their sin deeply before him. And this sting led them to desire the Lord afresh. They wanted salvation from their rebellious ways, and they wanted deliverance from this enemy plague that ravaged their land and their people. This is not unlike the sinner today who repents and turns to God in faith for forgiveness. Desiring to be free from sin's enslavement and delivered from sin's devastating effects upon his or her life. Forgiveness and deliverance from sin's grasp. Repentance is the door that leads to such powerful transformation. God tells them through his prophet that if they turn to him, then he will deliver them. This is precisely what they did And this is precisely what the Lord did. Look at verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Now look at verses 10 and 11. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Betkar. They repented before the Lord, saying openly, we have sinned. And they demonstrated this by fasting from food and by pouring out water, which likely was a way to visually declare that God was all that they needed, that he alone was the sole object of their faith. And the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against their enemies, And they were delivered. Now perhaps he is actually speaking of thunder, actual thunder. A thunder that was unmatched, no doubt, in its decibel level. Leaving the Philistines terrified and running for their lives. Making them easy prey for the pursuing Israelites. Or perhaps this is metaphorical and the Lord brought them into a mysterious state of confusion. Leading to their utter rout by his people. But whether it be actual or metaphorical, the reality is God thundered and God delivered. The people turned to him in humble faith and God brought them a glorious salvation. What's more, and with all this, we see here that repentance makes prayer effective. Look again at verse 5. Then Samuel said... Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And now notice verses 7 and 8. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel was the Lord's prophet, priest, and authoritative judge. And these fearful people of Israel looked to him to be their mediator between them and God. In fact, they begged him to pray persistently on their behalf with the goal that God would hear their humble petition and he would help them. Now, my friends, please recognize that the people of Israel here are taking a very different direction than they did back in chapter 4 when they previously faced the dreaded Philistines. Back in chapter 4, verse 3, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So previously, they looked to the ark of God as their lucky charm. But now, having humbled themselves, they directed their attention to the Lord himself. And they asked the prophet of God to plead with God on their behalf. You see, the difference between these two occasions was the object of their faith. Before, they trusted in the ark of God. But now, they trusted in God. So, Samuel prayed. And in verse 9, we see that he prayed on the basis of an offering. Do you see that? He prayed on the basis of an offering in verse 9. The offering of a sacrificed lamb. This animal was offered before the Lord, and like all such offerings, it was a pleasing aroma to God that visually and aromatically anticipated a better sacrifice that was yet to come a sacrifice that would actually take away the sin of God's people, not just for them, but for all time. John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day, John, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming towards him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John calls him the Lamb of God because Jesus is that better sacrifice who has come. All of those lambs, all the bulls and goats, all of the offerings pointed towards this superior sacrifice. For Jesus himself would not merely be a profound and powerful teacher, discipling men and women in the word of God, but Jesus himself would lay down his life, shedding his blood in payment for the sins of his people. So that if any sinner embraces him in faith, turning from their sins, they will be saved and begin to see God do a transforming work in their lives. And now Samuel, on the basis of this sacrifice here, which prefigured a true and better sacrifice to come, he cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and go figure, the Lord answered him. God heard his prayer, and he answered with a holy thunder on behalf of his people. They were repentant, and they made God himself the object of their faith. Therefore he heard their pleas, and he answered them. Oh, my friends, this is both our only basis for prayer, and it's also the firm promise behind our prayer. Our only basis for prayer with God is the shed blood of his sacrifice. We can only come to God in prayer. He will only welcome us to speak into His ears and only respond to us in grace because we come to Him on the basis of the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the firm promise behind our prayers. If you want to know if God hears your prayers and will answer them, will He honor them, the firm promise behind our prayers is that He will answer them and He will answer them for His glory, for our good, He will answer them because of this sacrifice. It ensures that He will both listen and answer. Therefore, when we turn from sin and when we look to Christ in faith, the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners, we can be confident that He will hear us and answer our prayers for our good and for His Utter glory. So we come to Him on that foundation, just like the Israelites. Finally, in this first point, repentance calls for joyful remembrance. It was very common in the Old Testament for the people of Israel to set up memorials, usually made of stone, to commemorate what the Lord had done for them. In Genesis 35, for instance, the patriarch Jacob set up a stone pillar to memorialize where the Lord had spoken with him. In, in Joshua chapter 4, there were 12 stones set up in the midst of the Jordan River to honor where God had allowed the people to cross over into the promised land. And now, in verse 12 of our chapter, Samuel took a stone and he set it up To commemorate how the Lord had helped his people. Now the location for this is not all that clear to us today, of where this happened. But its name is certainly timeless. He called it Ebenezer, which means helpful stone or stone of help. And the reason he called it Ebenezer is given to us in verse 12. Till now the Lord has helped us. This this till now could mean until this place, meaning that God had allowed them to take back their previously lost territory that the Philistines had taken from them, and to take it back as far as that new location. Or it could mean until this time, meaning that God had helped them faithfully right up until that very day. But probably this was meant to signify both. That just as the Lord had helped them restore their lost land up to that very location, so he had faithfully helped Israel since the very day he called them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And Samuel did this because truly repentant people who receive the gracious deliverance of God cannot help but praise him by remembering what he has done for them. Now, we don't have stones set up in a field today, but we do have visuals to remind us. We remember God's help to us every time we witness a baptism and affirm a believer's profession of faith. We're going to see this here in just a couple of weeks, Lord willing. Baptism is a a visual demonstration of the gospel and its effects in a person's life. Jesus died and rose again in payment for sinners. And so all who put their faith in Jesus Christ visualize this by being dipped down into water and brought back up to say, as Christ died and was raised, so I spiritually have died to sin and have been raised to Jesus Christ unto new life. We picture it. And we also do this every time we partake of the Lord's table, remembering what our Savior did for us on the cross. The communion table is a visual demonstration of the gospel pertaining to Christ's blood, Christ's body, His blood, as it was laid down and poured out for us. So, the Lord responds graciously to repentance. And my friends... If you will repent, the Lord will be gracious to you. If you you don't yet know Christ, having never turned away from your sins and embraced Jesus in faith as your Savior, please know, my friends, that if you turn to Him and place your trust in Him like a child who clings, then you will be saved You will be saved from the penalty of sin. No longer will there be any condemnation upon you from the God who is your judge. You will also be saved from the power of sin. No longer will it be your master, your enslaver, but now you will have the Spirit of God with the new heart He has given, and you will be able to see transformation in your life through Him. And one day, gloriously, you will be saved from the very presence of sin because the Savior who came as a lamb will one day come as a conquering king again, and on that day his people will be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And for those of you who do not know Christ, I pray, please turn to him today. But for those of you who do, you've embraced Jesus. You claim him as your Lord and your Savior. But you have been dabbling with sin. With one foot in the realm of the Baals and with another in the realm of the Lord, let me ask you, is today the day of your revival? Is today the day when you are restored to a healthy spiritual life after a period of decline? Oh, my friends. Is today the day when you repent and turn to Jesus, surrendering that sin that you have been harboring, tucking it away, holding it tight, is today the day. The second way that the Lord is kind, we see here in our passage that the Lord provides godly leaders. Samuel who prefigured the better leader, Jesus Christ, is our example of godly leadership this morning. And if we look carefully at this text, we'll see how faithfully, how he faithfully, though understand not perfectly, how he faithfully led the people of Israel towards the Lord. In, in looking at him here, we find, I think, four aspects of godly leadership which should inspire gratitude towards God when it's found and enjoyed by God's people. First of all, godly leadership urges heart repentance. It urges it. In verse 3, Samuel was incredibly bold with the people. He did not mince words. Look at it again. He says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Oh, people, do you know how hard it is to say something like that if you fear people more than you fear God. Think of it. This is Samuel alone before the people of Israel, speaking with piercing clarity in a message that he probably restated many times over many servants, perhaps even over many years. And he does not waver. He does not waffle. But he challenges them directly over their sinful idolatry, and he steadfastly urges them to repent. This took spirit-endowed courage because no one in their right mind enjoys standing alone before their own people. But Samuel had a higher allegiance than to Israel because he feared God supremely. And when he was willing to boldly urge heart repentance, God used that faithfulness for a powerful expression of transformation. My friends, the the real miracle here in this text is not, I think, God's deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. He could have done that at any time, just as he had so many times in the past and as he will do again in the future. No, I think the real miracle here is the way that God redirected hearts through the bold preaching of his word. He changed people's hearts. Do you know how hard that is to do? I can't do it. There's not an elder here who can. There's not a soul in this room who can. But God changed hearts. So praise God for Samuel, who is willing to get up and simply say in faithfulness, repent and turn to God. And secondly, godly leadership prioritizes sacrificial prayer. We've already read verses 5 and 9 where Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. But here we see the source of Samuel's vitality in preaching. Now I have no idea what kind of a communicator this man was. Maybe he was good and really easy to listen to or maybe he had some weird idiosyncrasies or had a boring tone or said um constantly. I, I don't know. But either way... His strength didn't come from his talent. His strength came from the Lord as he sought him out in prayer. And when the time came to plead with God on behalf of Israel, Samuel was simply continuing a conversation with the Lord that he'd already had with him many times over, asking God to help his repentant people. And it is not surprising at all that God answered him and fulfilled his request. Samuel stood in the gap between God and his people, pleading the merits of the sacrifice on their behalf. Dear friends, this is what every godly leader does. Whether that leader be a dad or a mom who pleads with God on behalf of their kids, or it be elders in a local church who plead with God for revival among their people, Or it be Christians in an adverse work environment begging God, begging God to open up the minds and the hearts of spiritually blind people who won't listen. Oh, leaders, they plead the merits of the sacrifice over those in their charge. They beg God to save people on the basis of the saving work of God's son. Samuel prayed this way on that foundation And good leaders today, wherever they may be found, do that very thing today. Not trusting in themselves or their own abilities, their own intuition, their own knowledge, their own wisdom, even their own experiences, their own past. But they lean upon the Lord, the one who is capable, the one who answers, the one who actually cares. And third, godly leadership leads others in joyful remembrance. If you are a human being, and I presume you are, you will forget, not just your wallet or a person's name, but you will fail to keep your mind on the goodness of God. And you will need God to remind you of His goodness in some very important ways. Objects like stone monuments are certainly helpful, as are the God-given pictures of baptism and the Lord's table. Reading his word is also vital if God is to be in the forefront of your minds. But do you know what else God gives to help his precious people remember? He gives leaders, parents, and good friends, and faithful local church elders who constantly remind us through the word of God that God is very good and we are very needy people like that are gifts who do what Samuel did in verse 12. They may not erect pillars and fields with unique Hebrew names, but they will take opportunities to point out how the Lord has helped you and how he will always be your help. Sometimes they do this through song. Like when they lead us to sing that famous old hymn, Come Thou Fount, which says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. I bet you won't ever sing that song the same way you did before, now that you know what the word means. Praise God for leaders who do that, who use many means to remind us of God's goodness. Fourth, godly leadership invests in people. Look carefully at the end of this, at Samuel's commitment to Israel. In verse 15, Samuel, it says, "...judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places." Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. All the days of his life, and all throughout the land of Israel, Samuel pointed the people to their God. Whether he was preaching in Bethel, or Gilgal, or Mizpah, or even near his hometown in Ramah, Samuel proclaimed the word of the Lord and pointed people to the Lord through sacrifice. His life was spent focused on God's people. And in that way, he's very much like one of my spiritual heroes, the man Ezra, where it says of him in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules. In Israel. Samuel, Ezra, they were God's men who were devoted to the Lord's word and to teaching his word to the people of Israel. Samuel was ultimately a pastor and the aim of his life was to point people to God, all of his goodness. And this could not have been easy, but it seems that Samuel never shied away from this task. However, before we start to glorify Him, we must know that He was not a perfect man. As we're going to see next time in chapter 8, His investment in the people of Israel came at the terrible expense of His own sons. And this should remind us that people ministry, ministry to people, leadership of people, it begins right in the home. Right there with wife, right there with kids, right there with spouse right there where God has given you people so very close. And in light of all this, I have two challenges for you. Lead well and follow well. Lead well by prayerfully reminding others of the goodness of God. Invest your life, if you're a Christian, in other believers and unbelievers That you might either remind them of or teach them about for the first time, perhaps, the goodness of God in the gospel. Being a leader doesn't mean you have a title. It doesn't mean you have a position. It doesn't mean you have a rank. It doesn't mean you have a place. Being a leader means you do actions. It means that you're willing to take your life, whatever God has given you, and you're willing to pour that into people, whether it be your son or your daughter or your spouse or your friend, your neighbor, whoever it might be, you lead by pointing people to Christ always. You want to lead me? Come lead me, friend. Let's read the Bible and you tell me about how God has been good to you, and I want to follow that kind of a message. Lead people by pointing people to Christ christ and then follow well by prizing good leadership that faithfully points you to god let me ask you when it comes to the leaders whom god has put over you and given to you in your life are you more of a thorn in their side or are you more of a hand on their shoulder? Are you one that is there to provoke and cause trouble? Or are you there one who is going to encourage and build up? Are you one that's going to receive humbly, knowing how needy you are in whatever station you might be in life? Are you going to be a receiver first of all? And when it comes time that there's uncertainty, will you be humble in the way you approach those who love you? Or will you be one who simply kicks back at any time you get challenged? Follow well by prizing good leadership that faithfully points you to God. I'm praying that as God has been reviving Riverside, He would revive Riverside. That we would see our people shed off sin and cling to Christ in such a powerful way That it will be clear, not just to us, but to other people around our congregation, that God is doing a work in our hearts. And also that he would revive this place. By not just transforming us, but with that, helping us to see people truly converted and come to know Jesus Christ. embracing Embracing Jesus Christ in light of their sin. Coming to him humbly. Because the blindness has been removed by God. And his people were willing to faithfully share the gospel. Oh, let's pray for that. Lord, would you revive this place? Revive this place, Lord, by specifically reviving this people. Revive my heart. Revive the hearts of the leaders in this room. Revive every individual here who knows Christ, Lord. That they might take that foot away from this world and jump full feed, Lord, into your realm, embracing you, seeking to follow you, turning from sin, admitting it, confessing it openly, Lord. Do that, I pray, and I pray, Lord, that we would pe- see people saved. Lord, people who truly come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Oh, Lord, we can't do it, but we know you, and you can. Would you please do this, we pray, in Jesus' name.